The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And then there's the other, you move upstream more towards what, you know, I talk about in the article, which is primary prevention, which is like, all right, we've got all this like secondary and tertiary prevention downstream for identifying things once once they've happened. We've got great updates to the DOD instruction governing how we address this, what can we address, all that kind of stuff. But let's talk about the things that are feeding this movement in, in general, right? What are the underlying sources of resilience that we can build on for folks who are in the military? And there are military-specific sources of strength that we often overlook that need to be considered when we talk about building resilience. And all these are the things that go into the primary prevention side, which I think is where insider threats is moving. And it's exciting to see that kind of policy change happen. And that's not punitive. That's not, you know, governing kind of, you know, policy. That's what is insider threats responsible for. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, April 8th, 2022. Last week for a Lawfare Web event, I sat down with Andrew Mines, a research fellow at George Washington's Program on Extremism. Mines helps lead the Program on Extremism's excellent efforts to keep track of criminal charges resulting from the January 6th Capitol Hill siege. I talked with Mines about the U.S. military's efforts to counter extremism within its ranks. Mines is the recent author of a Lawfare piece on the subject, and we talk through the history of the problem, the history of Defense Department efforts to fix it, and where the department is still coming up short. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 8th, Countering Extremism Within the Military. Andrew, I think maybe the best place to get started is, you know, you, you wrote this piece and sort of the background of the piece is that, among other things, in the U.S., we now, you know, and have for a long while had a problem with extremist groups and particularly sort of these right-wing domestic extremist groups. I wonder if you could, like, could you sort of just give some background as to, you know, what for the, for the purposes of our conversation, for the purpose of your article, what's sort of the constellation of groups that we're talking about and how would you, how would you sort of characterize it in very general terms, what the, the state of the threat is? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially in terms of the topic of the article, which is, you know, extremism in the military, that at a different point in time, that was a bit more centered on groups and individuals inspired by a completely different set of ideologies, right? Like today, we're focusing far more on right wing extremist groups. But of days past, that was much more the kind of Al Qaeda inspired, ISIS inspired organizations and folks in serving in the military, of course, but also, you know, veterans who um, we're either plotting attacks or all these other activities on behalf of those organizations. So, you know, this takes place in, in a context of a longer history of extremism in the military that we kind of want to be mindful of. But today it's much more, like you said, focused on the right wing extremist groups. And by that, I mean, especially in the context and the wake of January 6th, where a lot of the kind of policy change and um, movement that we're going to talk about today has taken place, you know, January 6th, we're looking at groups like the Oath Keepers, like the Proud Boys, um, Sovereign Citizen, the Three Percenters, um, and a bunch of other kind of racially motivated or malicious style groups that have really come to the forefront of the national conversation and have been tied with some of the more extreme kind of conspiracies we've seen uh, related to January 6th. But, you know, beyond that, we're also looking at a constellation of other white supremacist and kind of skull mask organizations, you know, groups that seek to bring about the end of the American political and sociopolitical order as we know it um, for a white ethno state, for a uh, state run by people of the white race, what, what have you. And so that's much more kind of the Adam Waffen division, Fuhrer-Krieg division, um, other skull mask groups like that, the Boogaloo movement, um, which is an accelerationist movement that, you know, folks like my colleague, John Lewis, you know, Cynthia Milledges and others have written about, you know, so we're talking about this constellation of militia movement, uh, white supremacists and neo-Nazi movements and like all these other kind of groups that feed into the, the right-wing extremist movement. So hopefully that provides folks with the kind of the constellation we're looking at when we're talking about, you know, what we're going to be looking at today, which is extremism in the military. And so you alluded to this a bit in your first answer, but I wonder if you could give us like sort of back up a bit and give us a, a broader history of concerns about extremism in the military. Like you alluded to the fact that the nexus of concern has sort of moved from, from one place to the other, but I wonder if you could elaborate a bit on that and sort of give us a sense of over time, how have, have people felt like this is an issue and what have been the sort of focuses of concern? Sure. I mean, there are folks who have been doing this a lot longer than I have, um, you know, folks at the Anti-Defamation League, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and others that have tracked this, you know, extremism in the military in one form or another for, for decades, right? And, you know, that doesn't start with the 2000s. That goes back to the you know, pre-2000s movements, all the way back to post-World War II. You know, Kathleen Ballou has done an incredible job, her work on the post-Vietnam, the return of many veterans and kind of the disillusionment of the Vietnam War era in particular as this massive mobilizing factor for a lot of veterans in this country. And so that takes us through the 70s and the 80s. 90s, you have these kind of key constellation moments or these key kind of focus factors like January 6th is for today. And those are like Ruby Ridge and Waco that become these organizing moments for the right-wing extremist movement. And so, you know, those are the pretty, at the forefront, kind of the key factors of the key events in history that we want to keep in mind. But when we talk about kind of the policy from DOD's perspective of how do they handle dissent, um, freedom of expression, and then related to that um, involvement and activities with or on behalf of, or in any kind of relation to extremist groups and movements. And so, it starts to come around and take more shape in the 90s. By 2009, in the wake of the Fort Hood shooting, you have the DOD instruction 132506, which handles 
relations to extremist movements, groups, criminal gain activities, and, and other things. And so that basically replaces the old policy. And one form or another is like the current policy that DOD uses to govern active duty, reserve, National Guard components, civilian employees, everybody that's part of the DOD workforce. And so um, that covers 2009. There's a bit of an update in 2012 after some kind of activities on around involving military bases. And then we have, of course, the update that we're going to talk about today, which is 2021 post-Capitol riot, you know, another flashpoint in history for the DOD's policy to consider how are we dealing with this threat? How are we managing it? And so those are kind of the key flashpoints, I, I would say, throughout history over the decades. So we'll get into the, the sort of policy development in a bit, but I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about sort of you know, there have been some concerns over time, popular concerns, I think, about this and Fort Hood being an obvious flashpoint for that. But it does seem to me to be the case that in recent years, maybe the past two or three years, the issue of extremism within the military and extremism among veterans and certain groups of veterans has really taken off to in a way that it maybe hasn't. You know, it's been a while since it has, and it sort of has, I think, become a particular nexus of concern. So we'll talk about January 6th in a bit, but aside from that and sort of predating January 6th, is it your sense that this has been something that has sort of gotten more attention as, and has become a bigger issue? Am I off base on that? No, I think that like definitely the last few years, several years as the national conversation and attention has, you know, moved kind of has allowed space for this in addition to like the ISIS mobilization in particular throughout the 2010s. But definitely the last several years, I think you're absolutely right. It's come a lot more to bear you know, 2017, 2018, we start to see these military time surveys that 30% plus or around there of individuals in the active force have seen signs of or have experienced you know, white supremacism in its many forms. START at Maryland has tracked this data for, for, for several years now, and their profiles of individuals radicalized in the United States, that database is a great resource for folks who are interested in but they've done a great job compiling over the last three decades, at least, folks that meet this criteria. And I think it's somewhere around 1,500, 2,000 individuals in that database, 450 of whom have military experience. The vast majority of those have veterans. But they track a sharp uptick in folks in their database who have military experience in the 2010s, especially towards the end of the 2010s. Even excluding January 6th, you know, you get a huge uptick in number from the dozens of individuals who are arrested with January 6th. If you take that number away, it's still a huge uptick from previous decades. Um, and there are other, you know, data points that we can look at to, you know, show us that this is a, you know, when we talk about base points and, and how can we, from like a data empirics perspective, talk about the rise of extremism in the military. There are a number of metrics we have available to us that show us that this is a growing problem. And it's definitely gotten a lot more attention in the news cycle over the last three years, especially. So that might take us nicely to January 6th. So I, I wonder you guys at, at GW, the program on extremism have done such a nice job of tracking many aspects of, of all things January 6th, but, but one of them being the sort of the arrests and the you know, various court filings associated with them. And that has given among other things, like a pretty good database of who was participating in January 6th, who are the people, what are sort of the demographic profile of January 6th arrests. And I'm wondering in your, in the course of doing that research and in the course of just digging around for, you know, a better, a better look at what actually happened and who is actually participating, 
what's your sense of the level of DOD associated and you know veteran associated participation in in January 6th? Definitely. So right now we're at about 775. I think that tracks with you know what Lawfare and other organizations are also tracking, USA Today and others. We're all around 770, 80, 90 at this point of individuals who have been arrested in relation to January 6th riot. Right now, depending on where you set your threshold, and we set ours, you know, pretty stringently, like we don't include folks who have been charged in the DC Superior Court. We don't include Ashley Babbitt and others, but you know. That aside, you're looking at between 100 to 115 or so individuals with military experience out of those 775 or so. So you're looking at about 12, 13%. There are other organizations like START that you know, have, have data figures that are a bit higher, but overall, you're looking probably around 15%. That might grow as cases proceed and we get more information, especially in superseding indictments, um, sentencing memorandums as these cases go to trial that tell us more about the individuals that were involved. And so we might find that, you know, quite a few more actually have military experience than we initially thought. But, you know, overall, it's a pretty substantial percentage. When you look at that percentage compared to the national average of folks who have military experience, that was the big sticking point for a lot of uh, news reports in the wake of January 6th. And it continues to be so today. It's like, why are there so many more people with military experience at January 6th than there are in the broader U.S. population? Why are veterans and active duty folks overrepresented in the January 6th riot? And I think sometimes this can be a bit misleading because, you know, this is only individuals who are charged in relation to January 6th. This doesn't include the thousands of others who are probably still under investigation or are likely never going to be charged because they didn't do anything unlawful technically at the end of the day. And the DOJ has to focus on other groups and other organizations and other individuals who entered the Capitol, who destroyed property or stole property or all these other things that they're charging. Conspiracy um, and seditious conspiracy, latest of all, being the most severe charges that are being brought alongside assault on law enforcement. And so, you know, the military constellation by the numbers is a bit larger probably than what we'd expect. But I think the two biggest findings that I found with Dan Milton when we wrote a report on this last year and that remain true today are that veterans are make the vast majority of folks who were involved in January 6th who have military experience. That's stayed pretty constant at 85 to 95 percent. I think it's about 90 percent today. Um, and that's probably going to remain the same. So veterans make up the vast majority. And the second is that the proportion of folks with military experience versus those that don't have military experience who have connections to domestic violent extremist groups, not just ideologies like the QAnon conspiracy theory and other, but I'm talking about hardcore groups like the Oath Keepers, like the Proud Boys, like the Three Percenters that we talked about. That proportion is much higher for folks with military experience. It's hovered between three and four times as high as folks without military experience. And so I think that starts to give us a little bit of a better understanding of the kind of contours when we talk about extremism in the military. You know, more so probably than the, the wider extremist movement, the right-wing extremist movement in this country. We're starting to focus a little bit more in, on group involvement, group culture, how military experience and symbols and norms and values and all these things kind of play a role feeding into those groups. And why does it make folks who have military experience a bit more susceptible to those ideologies, to recruitment by domestic violent extremist groups? And so I think those were the two biggest findings that 
have remained true over time. And we, we expect those to remain true for the next foreseeable future. Could you say a bit more about the, the second part of that answer? So it, it's, I think people in the audience could probably intuit some of the reasons why you know, military training, military, a military background might be more conducive to joining a group that, you know, sort of has the trap, militaristic trappings and frames things in a very like operational lens and likes to talk about themselves as if they have like a formal chain of command and, and things like that. But could you just walk us through slowly and sort of in, in whatever detail you feel like is right, what is the sort of link between those two things? Like what is, if you could flesh out why it might be the case that joining one of those groups is, is particularly, might be particularly attractive to someone who spent a significant amount of time like in the actual U.S. military. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there are sort of the tactical reasons for why these groups go after folks with military experience. And then there are sort of the broader strategic reasons and vice versa. Uh, so we look at why do groups go after folks with military experience? Tactically, it makes sense. You know, they bring a lot of weapons training exposure to, you know, you look at some of the things that were on display at January 6th, they're quite basic, but, you know, nevertheless, they add some value, which is like stack formation, lines, cohesiveness, and other things that come with military training. There's kind of the psychological aspect of that too, which is mental hardening. You know, how do folks who go through military experience, that's part of their training is to distinguish in-group and out-groups as they go through the military. And those are things that aren't necessarily, when folks are transitioning out, there's, there's not a lot that goes into kind of helping them with that transition and easing that hardening on the front side. So when they're coming out, their perceptions about civilians, you know, those are things that need addressing, that need to be worked through. Um, their perceptions about help seeking and, and reaching out to others, perceptions about, you know, finding purpose and connection and all these other things that they developed during their time in the military that aren't exactly kind of addressed on the transitioning outside. And so, you know, that there's, there's a lot that we could unpack with there. There are great studies out there that develop these, you know, military to civilian adjustment models and reintegration models that we can look at and say, you know, what about this makes folks more susceptible? How can we be helping folks who are transitioning out more to protect against the kind of things that domestic violent extremist groups go after? So that's all on the kind of tactical cultural side. Then there's the kind of strategic side of things, which is folks with military background bring an immense amount of legitimacy and purpose to organizations like the Oath Keepers, founded by an Army veteran, right, to the three presenters, uh, to, to the Proud Boys. When you have folks involved in the organization who supposedly represent the best of American society, who hold the military, the military's weight, at least, and the ideals and the purpose behind it, and do that front and center in front of camera at rallies that might turn violent, you know, certainly at January 6th, that adds a sense of legitimacy, not just to these groups, but to what they're doing, to the movement itself, to anti-democratic processes and all of these things that break down, you know, what we understand as our society. The things that go into to the basic transition of power, to uh, voting and civil rights and all these things that we celebrate. And so there's the tactical side, there's this strategic side. And I think both of those kind of contribute to why groups go after folks with military experience in particular. So you had alluded to in an earlier answer, the evolution of DOD policy on this in this space. And I wonder if you could just flesh out a bit more of that here for us. You, you mentioned like a couple different inflection points and in how 
as a formal policy matter, DOD approaches the question and, you know, it's the way that this, you know, their, their posture to the issue has evolved over time. Could you just walk us through that, you know, slowly with what has happened over the decades and what's your general sense of like the, the direction of travel here? Like where is, where is DOD headed? Yeah, I think the biggest point is that 2009 kind of overhaul of DOD instruction on uh, prohibited activities as it relates to extremist groups and criminal gain activities. And so that covers, you know, it's from the 2009 era. So it, the, a lot of the language for, for some time now has needed updating when it comes to using social media. You know, you look at the language from the 2009 doctrine and a lot of it is about like postings on base and, um, you know, iconography, tattoos, all the kind of things that are still relevant that still need to be addressed. But you know, needed updating through the 2012 and then certainly the 2021 DOD instruction. And so those were the, some of the biggest kind of updates that came through in last year's update to the DOD instruction, especially when it comes to social media usage. You know, DOD's change in policy on these issues has introduced language that's a lot more stringent on what type of things folks who are serving in National Guard reserves, everything that DOD touches what those folks can post, what they can share, what they can, you know, like and be kind of more open with on their personal profiles on social media. So, you know, a large extent, this is pretty far reaching effects of how folks who are in our military can conduct themselves online. The second part of that was with their offline um, experiences, right? What they choose to be involved with and the kind of activities that they're involved with. And to date, or at least in the pre-2021, like the 2009-12 era language was pretty, you know, you look at it and it seems like kind of like, if you know, you know, or we'll know it when we see it kind of language, right? But that means very different things to very different people across the, the broad spectrum of employees at the DOD. Um, and when it comes down to it, to commanders who are making these kind of decisions when somebody underneath them is, 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 has been involved in, you know, whatever. And so that looks very different to a bunch of different people, but new language introduced recently is a lot more stringent on the types of activities that folks at DOD can't be involved in and pretty specific language targeting activities like January 6th, where there's a likelihood that an event, according to any, you know, rational observer, I think is the exact language, when that might turn violent or when that might escalate beyond a, a, a level of a peaceful protest that is the kind of new language that's been introduced. And so 2021, the update's pretty good, but there's a whole kind of category, and this is something I hope we can get into more in the conversation, which is like, there's this whole category of non-instruction related stuff. So you got the DOD instruction, and then you got the actual insider threat policy that governs how DOD kind of investigates, processes, complaints, and like all these things that go into counter-extremism in the workforce. And so that's the back half of the report. I think a lot of people focus on the front half of the report just because they're like, oh, like they're banning social media among service members, right? Here they go again. And there's clear targeting of Jan 6 style activities. And so people started to focus a lot on that. And then there wasn't as much focus on the back half of the report, which is actually where a lot of the interesting meat comes in, in, in my view. And so hopefully we can, we can talk about some of it, but that kind of the 50,000 foot policy level of how we've moved from 2009, 12 to today. So in the, the 2021 update, and just as a general matter, is it right to sort of think about 
you you did some sort of distinction making between different ways that these policies are are enforced. But I wonder if it's helpful at all to think of it as like some of these things are, you know, it's like implementing rules about like what type of conduct is not allowed, right? And then on the other hand, it's also there's these sort of non non punitive, non prescriptive sort of policy measures that are that are aimed at you know prevention, stemming off people before they you know head down this path. Is that like the the right general way to think about these things? That it's like on the one hand, like any workplace, you know, DOD is is sort of setting rules for professional discipline and sort of keeping people in certain bounds with what types of things are allowed, what types of things are not allowed. And then separate and apart from that, there's an effort at sort of, as you would say, like programming, right? That things aimed at instruction and didactic purposes to keep people away from these types of ideas. Is that like a, a generally correct way of thinking about this? Absolutely. I, I think that's the nail on the head right there. You know, there's the instruction side, which governs how not only complaints get raised and processed and what commanders should do when they see this kind of stuff or when complaints are raised to them from within the unit, or in some cases, when commanders of commanders, you know, see their commanders at, you know, promoting this kind of activity or um, in the case of a lieutenant colonel who was, I believe, dismissed, you know, spouting anti-Chinese, you know, COVID era misinformation in, in, in lectures to his, his, his troops. And so, you know, there's kind of the punitive aspect of that, which is, all right, we spotted this. What do we do now? Do we bring this to military court? Do we do kind of these administrative dismissals? Like, how do we work with this person? If we're sending them out and dismissing them at whatever level, you know, dishonorable or, or misconduct or, or whatever level you're dismissing someone. Aren't we just throwing them right back out into society, kind of leaving them on a limb? Benefits get messed around with a little bit. And so we're just throwing this person out basically to a domestic violent extremist group like the Oath Keepers. That might seem like a likely choice for someone. Uh, so there are a lot of c- careful considerations that they need to consider on like the, the, the punitive side, right? And how do you develop these non-punitive interventions once you've identified someone? And so to your point, exactly, right? And then there's the other, you move upstream more towards what, you know, I talk about in the article, which is primary prevention, which is like, all right, we've got all this like secondary and tertiary prevention downstream for identifying things once they've happened. We've got great updates to the DOD instruction governing how we address this, what can we address, all that kind of stuff. But let's talk about the, the things that are feeding this movement in, in general, right? What are the underlying sources of resilience that we can build on for folks who are in the military? And there are military-specific sources of strength that we often overlook that need to be considered when we talk about building resilience. And all these are the things that go into the primary prevention side, which I think is where insider threats is moving. And it's exciting to see that kind of policy change happen. And that's not punitive. That's not, you know, governing kind of, you know, policy. That's what is insider threats responsible for. And so it, it's, it's exciting to see. And I think the way you framed it there is, is, is spot on. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People By Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information 
you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And so before we move to talking more about, I want to talk more about the primary prevention and the insider threats as, as a general model. But I'm, I'm curious, like in the in this framework and in the way that DOD approaches the issue, who is the onus on, right, to be identifying people within, you know, within the military and within within DOD who are spouting these ideas, right, who, you know, have their tattoo that has the three percenter symbol on it or whatever it may be. Like, is this the type of thing where the model is that a commander of a given unit is, is sort of has the responsibility to be vigilant for these things and report up the chain of command as they see them? Like, what's the sort of reporting mechanism? Yeah. Pre-2021, the onus is is pretty much on commanders, right? They see this, they know their units well, they command the respect, hopefully, of their units. Um, and so they're responsible for a lot of the reporting that goes through. What the 2021 update, and then, you know, think they take it from there, right? Insider Threats considers the case, they investigate, and then do they move into kind of punitive action after that? Do they refer to law enforcement, like federal law enforcement or local state law enforcement? Or do they keep it in-house? And so that's kind of the first track. Then there's the second track, which we didn't really have before, and which the, you know, the new working group report that was released in December, um, which we talked about in the article, what that covers, which is all these updates to insider threats tapping money and resources and personnel for a, a few key things. And I think, you know, one of those includes a behavioral analysis center, um, which they've, they've tapped INT, insider threats to receive. That's great. That's kind of like the, you know, it, it mirrors sort of the FBI's approach, which is you staff a behavioral analysis center with threat assessment professionals, with behavioral scientists, people who have the training and background that as great as our active force is and as our commanders are you know they're not trained expert threat assessors they're not they're not trained behavioral scientists for the most part right and so staffing insider threats with a behavioral analysis center that can do that kind of work is i think a really great update and a really important step and then you know giving them responsibilities for a case management system i think they call it like a system of systems or something in the report but this is one of the biggest things that, you know, pesky researchers like me have been have been calling for for years, which is like, we don't have great data. We don't, you know, we don't know ideologies, level of involvement, group versus individual and inspired. Like, what's going on here? What are, what's the predominant strain that we need to be worried about in terms of ideologies? How involved are people? What's the general caseload, right? And hopefully that's going to give us a much better sense of these kind of broader, you know, trends and things that we should be on the lookout for. And then some transparency when it comes to reporting those in inspector general reports. That's great. You know, those are things that we look forward to. And then 
probably the biggest thing that sets up this second, this parallel track to the first track I described. An anonymous force-wide hotline that at any level folks in DOD can call if they suspect that a member of their unit, one of their commanders or above has, you know, is involved with uh, extremist groups who's spouting off, you know, conspiracy theories or all these other things for insider threats to consider. And so you put both of those together and you have this parallel track to ensure that at whatever level, if something is happening, you know, ideally it gets reported up through one or both of these chains. And so it won't go missed and it won't just get handled in that first track, um, handled internally. And then, you know, maybe it gets handled um, in a transparent manner, maybe it doesn't. Now we have two tracks to kind of guide us through this process. So I, that was something I think that a lot of folks missed in this latest update. That's pretty exciting. That's a really important update. And, you know, I think DOD deserves, deserves some credit for, for establishing. So you use the phrase insider threats a lot over the course of the conversation. Could you just talk a bit more about like, what, it, what does that mean in this context and why is it such an important thing to think about? So the DOD Office of Insider Threats, the Insider Threats Program is responsible for all, and this is true to a lot of government agencies. This isn't just DOD. You know, Insider Threats is a part program, part policy that governs the federal workforce and other workforces when it comes to a number of issues related to criminal gang activity, to extremist groups, and to to others. And so um, this isn't like a DOD-specific policy, but DOD has an office program for insider threats that's responsible for overseeing all of these um, cases, for managing these cases, and for following up. And so it seems like, you know, when we we kind of step back, in the wake of January 6th, and, and I was guilty of this too. You know, a lot of people were, were calling for an entirely new office to be set up, right? And that DOD is not doing enough and that they need to establish a firm new office and, and overhaul the system and all these kind of policy changes that kind of overlooked insider threats, which is right there, which is like, let's work with what we've got, beef up on personnel, resources, dollars, behavioral analysis center, the hotline, I'm staffing it with personnel, expanding its responsibilities making that forcing them to basically conduct a review and an assessment of existing reporting mechanisms. Are they efficient? Are they efficacious? Do it, you know, boosting up all these things for insider threats to work through. And I think ultimately, you know, it seems like that's the direction where a lot of the current policy and future policy is going to be focused on. And so I guess I have to kind of scold myself for uh, being in the, being in the group of folks who was, you know, calling for drastic change initially, but that seems to be, where things are going, and um, in in many respects, it makes sense. And so, on the the primary prevention side, that's something that you had mentioned was sort of a particularly interesting component of this report. To you, what's your assessment of that? Like, what are the things that you feel like this report has done, and DoD in general is doing that that are sort of maybe innovative, efficacious things that you see as maybe like on the best practices end of things? Like, what's your what would be the positive reaction to that from you looking at everything? Yeah, so there's like the secondary tertiary side of prevention that we talked about, which is identifying and deciding the right level of intervention or interdiction once something somebody's pretty far down the path or looks like they're going down a path towards something. In this case, radicalization to extremist violence or conducting extremist activities, violent or nonviolent. But then there's this entire side of, you know, from the medical field, primary prevention, which is how do we work on preventing something before it's even occurred? Um, and so what that looks like for 
DOD is all these resources and trainings and programming that governs not just explaining rules and explaining to folks in the DOD, like, hey, this is how you, here, here's this parallel track. Um, you can report to your commander. You can also call this hotline. This is what you do when you see something. But taking a more active, you know, a more proactive stance in educating folks in the workforce on, hey, this is, you know, these organizations espouse these kind of ideologies and to folks who are transitioning out as they're transitioning out, you know, working on an online training to help them with, hey, you're likely going to be or you might be the target of recruitment by some extremist group. You might see them reach out to you in these kind of overt or covert ways. You might see them posting these kind of things on their various platforms and that might seem appealing to you. That might seem patriotic to you, but you need to know that these groups have a history of X, Y, and Z and taking, so that's kind of like the proactive stance, right? The other side of it is there's, there's a bunch of different terms. I think the most common one folks might've seen is, uh, you know, cognitive immunization or um, inoculation against radicalization, right? And that's really about hardening folks's, you know, the psychology of folks, um, increasing their resilience to the underlying factors that drive extremist groups, ideologies, and movements. And so that can look like a number of things. And a lot of this comes from a little bit more of like the behavioral health side of things when we talk about like cognitive behavioral therapies that work and other kind of therapies that are that work to produce anxiety. And how do we work on restructuring what's there in folks' outlooks? Or how do we work on structuring how they process information? Now, usually, you know, from like a health sciences, behavioral health sciences approach, like that happens over 12 meetings, right? Or, you know, it happens over an extended period of time. And DOD doesn't exactly have the luxury of doing that with every single member of its workforce, nor, nor should they. But how do you target these kind of things and package them in, in the case of Harold uh, at American University, who's done a great work on this type of primary prevention activities? Like, how do you package that in seven minutes to someone to help harden them against conspiracy theories um, against recruitment targeted specifically at military folks by domestic violent extremist groups. And so that all comes part of this, like this primary prevention practice that based on the report that, that I, that I've seen at least um, and some of the you know, events that have been held since and the direction that, you know, the house VA committee seems to be going that the DOD itself seems to be going, they're largely starting to consider those kind of primary prevention practices. And this is kind of where the field overall is moving. And I think that's, that's an exciting thing to see DOD stepping into. There's definitely gonna be points and I know they're expecting pushback, but it's an exciting, it's an exciting thing to see. In your article, there are a couple of things here that you, you feel like maybe leave something to be desired, right? Like there's, there's areas of growth, things to be improved upon. I wonder if you could just like take a bit of time and sort of spell that out for us. Like what are the things when you look at where DOD is headed and sort of the state of affairs, what the set of problems are, and then you look at this report, where do you feel like they're sort of off base or maybe behind the times missing something? So the, the first one, I, I kind of talk about two gaps. The first one is when these policies kick in and then who they reach is the second one. So on the, the first side of things, when these policies kick in, that is largely this kind of primary versus secondary prevention discussion that we've been having, which is how do we move away from just, you know, beefing up our identification and interdiction mechanisms and then explaining those to 
how do we provide our service members with the best cognitive skill set possible to prepare them for attempts by not just extremist organizations, but foreign actors to kind of modify their behavior or, or intrude upon their online space, right? And all these things and influence them, all these foreign influence activities that kind of get wrapped up into it. So, you know, that's stepping a bit farther away from the extremist side of things, but I, I think it's worth mentioning. But how do we how do we work on that? Um, how do we work on on the resilient side of things? And so I spoke, you know, I spoke pretty positively about where I think things are heading. I just want that to be the case. I think a lot of folks are waiting for that to be the case. And there's a lot of exciting signs that it's hopefully going to be the case. And, you know, two, three years, we weren't even really talking about this at a, at a, you know, kind of higher, more wider level in public discussion, even in kind of the research sphere. I think we're a lot of the drivers like New America, like Parallel American University, that have been responsible for, for producing a lot of the empirical research that are driving these movements. I mean, that's just, it's just fantastic that we can now talk about these in like a, this is good policy. Um, and this is hopefully policy that we're going to see play out in the coming, you know, weeks, months, and then certainly the years. And so we're kind of at this inflection point where, you know, I spoke positively about this. It looks like we're heading that direction, but you don't want to speak too soon before before things happen. And so that's kind of the the first side when when policies kick in. And then the second is 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 who they reach. And we spent you know the last thirty five minutes or so talking about DOD and, and the active force, reserve national guard, like all these different components, the civilian workforce. We haven't spent as much time talking about veterans. And when it comes to these policies, there's only so much that the National Defense Authorization Act and the DOD can do to basically help veterans in this respect. And folks who are part of the, of the military have a lot more restrictions on them in terms of you know, when it comes to DOD instruction, like we talked about earlier, you know, DOD has a lot more say in what they're doing than veterans who become civilians again, uh, more or less. And you can't tell them what they can and can't be posting on social media, right? And all these things. So, but when you look at the data, and again, that, that start statistic I mentioned where 85 to 90% of the individuals over the last three decades who are in their data set for extremist related offenses, you know, with military experience, 85 to 90% of them are veterans. We look at Jan 6, like I said, in our data set, 90% of them are veterans. You know, how do we reach that population? And so that's where things become a little bit more, you know, we move from talking about DOD instruction and insider threats, and we talk about civil society. What role can, can non-NGOs and research community and uh, veteran support organizations VSOs uh, play in, in this regard. And so, you know, that's, that's where that kind of comes to bear. And to date, you know, I, I, I write about this in the, in the article, there's been some exciting developments on that front too. You know, the House VA committee has taken a lot of steps to see, work with VSOs, to work with the research community, do briefings and, and kind of assess what can we do to help veterans in this regard? You know, when it comes a bit farther back in the, in, the, in the stream of things, in the life cycle of things. How can the military to civilian transition office play a greater role in strengthening folks as they're transitioning out of service and into their veteran lives? And then there are tons of veteran service organizations that, that look set to kind of work on these issues, but one that I wanted to bring attention to in particular is, is a group that's We the Veterans, and they've done some amazing work so far. 
and they look set to do some amazing work going forward in terms of you know kind of reaching out and establishing a network of veterans and veterans groups that oppose the the the, the kind of democracy eroding extremist things that we saw on January 6th and mobilizing action at a grassroots level from the veteran community, opening dialogue, opening channels of conversation, hosting events, you know, bringing that social sciences perspective, the primary prevention practices that I mentioned. How can you connect those kind of resources with veterans who otherwise wouldn't be affected by DOD policy? And so it looks set that like they're going to start along some of those kind of practices and they're going to start incorporating some, a lot of those. And so there's a lot of exciting movement on that front. So hopefully, hopefully we'll see more of it going forward. I, I wonder like what you make of the media coverage of this issue, right? Like I, I find it to be like, on the one hand is it's probably a good thing that this is the type of issue that is getting more attention and right there have been, I don't know if there's actually been a 60 minutes episode about this, but it feels like there has of, you know, military participation and veteran participation in January 6th. But it also strikes me sometimes that the coverage of this is, is somewhat bizarre in its sort of fixation on one aspect of the problem while sort of overlooking other things. I, I wonder, like, you know way more about this than I do. Like, what have you made of the way that, I, I hate the word the media, but like the way that sort of more commonly read outlets have treated this issue? I think... For good reason, whenever somebody who has military experience is tied to an attack or to one of these events, it's pretty widely covered in the media and we bring a lot of attention to it. And rightly so, you know, this is this is our military community for, for one reason or another. We hold folks in our military community up on a pedestal. And you know, there's a lot to unpack with that, but you know, when it comes to an attack or a riot that that sought to unseat, you know, our democratic process, the peaceful transition of power. When folks with military experience that are either serving or have served are involved with that, there's a lot of attention that gets brought to it. And as we talked, we already talked at length about the changes in DOD instruction. And those have been informed by these kind of flashpoints where this happens and the public calls for this, you know, immediate policy response from, from DOD and from the VA and others. And they consider it. And I think We've seen over the last year now, it was 15 months since January 6th, like DOD has taken a, a kind of a measured approach to this, commissioned the study by the working group, has implemented so far some great policy changes that we've talked about throughout this conversation, um, and is moving in the direction where a lot of the broader countering extremist approaches across our government are headed today. And so the media angle is an interesting one, but I think it's one that's forced our defense VA and our broader military communities to be the best version of themselves. Like I said, veteran service organizations like We the Veterans have, have come forth and come out and spoken vehemently against the kind of activities that drove January 6th and the movements and groups that were involved. And so it's really brought about this kind of change, good or bad, you know, good or bad about the focus on this level of issue and probably the disproportionate focus on the military side of things. But it's bringing about all of this change. And historically, you know, our, our military has been the driver of some of the greatest innovation in this country. And so it, it looks set to kind of be the same thing when it comes to countering extremism and the types of practices that are informing our approach and that are being implemented. And so, yeah, you know, like it kind of is what it is. Like I get to sit here and comment about it and we get to analyze this as researchers. And, you know, the media gets to comment on this and, and 
cry all, <laughs> you know, bloody hell when something happens involving the military. And then to DOD, VA, VSOs, to the military community's credit, seems so far like they're rising to the challenge and they're driving a lot of good change. Andrew, one thing that I was thinking about as you were talking about this is, I wonder what's next for you in researching this particular issue. Like, are there are there new documents that you're looking out for? Like, are there a particular set of data you guys are, are taking a closer look at? Like, what's the next for you guys at um, the GW program? Like, what's the next subset of research and the questions that are going to guide the way that you're looking into this stuff? Definitely. Well, there's um, there's actually, it's timely. There's an exciting event tomorrow being held by the um, House VA Committee. If folks are interested, anybody who's, who's watching is interested. You know, we're not taking part, but a lot of folks I've talked about today, folks involved with We the Veterans, other organizations, Parents for Peace, who, who sometimes work these kind of cases, they're going to be talking about these issues and the role that peers can play when it comes to, you know, counter-extremism. And so that's so that's something that I'm excited about and I want to see because there's a large role here for folks in the military and, and in the veteran community to play when it comes to at the grassroots level and then kind of coordinating that at a broader like kind of national conversation level. So there's a big role for them to play here uh, and it seems like they're eager to play it. So I'm looking forward to that. But aside from that, there's a lot more data that we can be gathering. There's a lot more work that we can be doing with folks who are part of the active force in terms of interviews, um, survey work, uh, getting a sense of, you know, we've had these kind of stand down days for the last year or so now, the conversations that came up then, of course, and follow up briefings and all these things. But, you know, how does how does the active force kind of think about this? We talked about the Wisconsin National Guard unit. I'm sure they've got something, uh, some interesting, you know, perceptions to, to, to bring to bear. But what have been the most successful things for folks who have done these kind of conversations and have worked with their units, uh, have those conversations yielded merit when it comes to talking about extremism in the ranks? And then of course, you know, what are going to be the best package of policies or package of kind of practices when it comes to the primary prevention that we've talked about? You know, it's, there's a lot of exciting work to be done when it comes to, you know, quick seven minute interventions, but also longer, more sustained interventions. What is the most you know, effective way to transmit the kind of change that we're talking about in a single train, in a series of trainings. All, all this kind of work has, is, is, is still kind of on the table. So it's exciting. There's, there's a lot to be done. So Andrew, thank you so much. This has been fun for me. I've learned a lot. Thanks everybody. Thank you, Jacob. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Later in April, we'll be hosting a joint show with Georgetown Law about the implications of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on the international system. Before you go, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and The Aftermath, Lawfare's narrative podcast series about January 6th. The podcast is edited and produced by Jen Patiahau, and Lawfare Live is produced by Catherine Pompilio. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Hold up. 
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.